uncomfortable situations. Right now, I know there are some of you, uh, you really enjoy awkward moments, right? You enjoy those times when everyone else in the room feels uncomfortable, but you don't. You kind of feed off of that, right? But I think most of us, we don't like uncomfortable things, right? We like the temperature to be comfortable. We like the amount in our bank account to be comfortable. We like to be surrounded by friends that make us feel comfortable. We like to be in a city group, in a church, and things that make us feel comfortable. We don't like uncomfortable things. We don't like uncomfortable situations or relationships. I think most of us, to some degree or another, we like comfort, and dare I even say that we love comfort. And many of our decisions that we make throughout life are probably driven from a pursuit of comfort. I think comfort is such a huge issue for us that if we're being honest, it sadly seems like church people often at times love comfort more than we love people. Now, a silly example of this, okay, would be if you come across someone and you see something in their teeth right? We've all had those moments, right? You spot something in someone's teeth. And unless you're, unless it's like your spouse or a close friend, like then it's no big deal to mention, hey, you've got, you know, something here. Uh, But let's say it's a colleague, someone you don't really know that well, someone you come across, you see something in their teeth. Now that would be an uncomfortable thing to bring up, right? Like, hey, hey, I noticed you got something there. That, that makes it a little awkward there for a moment. But if you don't have that awkward, uncomfortable conversation, then they go the rest of the day with food stuck in their teeth and everyone looking at them strangely and kind of laughing on the inside at them, right? Isn't that the worst when you get done with a, 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 a day that you feel really good about or a conversation you feel really good about? You get in your car and you look in the rearview mirror and you've just got something just just really obnoxiously like like standing out there and your teeth are on your face. And you're like, why, why didn't that person say anything? Like, this is obvious, right? But no, we don't, we don't like to have those uncomfortable conversations, even if it's something silly like that. And so the question we have to ask this morning is, do we love comfort or do we love people? Do we love comfort or do we love people? Or um, a little bit more of a serious example of this would be uh, with, with Britt and I. And uh, in our marriage, um, because I don't like conflict, uh, we hardly ever fight or argue. Uh, now, early on in our marriage, uh, I just pridefully assumed it was because we were so awesome that we didn't fight or argue, right? I would hear about everyone else's marriages, and you know, you guys got a lot of issues going on, and conflicts coming up, and things like that, and I'd always be so surprised, like, like, wh- like what all this that was happening in other marriages, and I just kind of pridefully thought, hey, everyone else needs to get this thing figured out, uh, like Britt and I have this thing figured out. But in reality... In reality, what was happening was Britt wasn't bringing up difficult things to uh, to the surface because she knew I didn't like uncomfortable or stressful conversations. And I wouldn't bring difficult things up because I just wanted things to remain comfortable and peaceful. And then we'd go about five years and things would just kind of be building up, right? Until eventually at the five-year mark, we'd have an epic showdown of all the five years of stuff that we hadn't dealt with. And you see, what I've falsely thought for a long time was that the pursuit of comfort was the same thing as the pursuit of peace. Peace. 
I've, I've falsely thought that the pursuit of comfort was the same thing as the pursuit of peace and church. Those are not the same things. In fact, the biblical pursuit of peace, peace with God and peace with one another, we are often called to courageously give up our own comforts and lean into the uncomfortable. The uncomfortable relationships, the uncomfortable topics no one wants to talk about, the uncomfortable conflicts, the uncomfortable conversations, the uncomfortable situations. You see in our, in our story that we're going to jump into here in just a second, the most comfortable thing for Esther to do here is to not have this conversation, right? The most comfortable thing for her to do is just to kind of hide her identity, abandon her people, and look out for herself. But no, she shows here that she courageously loves her people more than she loves her comfort. And she pursues peace for herself and for her people by courageously stepping into this uncomfortable, dangerous situation. And oh church, wouldn't this be a glorious thing to be in a church who loves its people more than it loves its comforts? That's the church I want to be a part of. But let's look at Esther 7, verse 1. Esther 7, verse 1. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, and it shall be fulfilled. Okay, now remember, this is the third time that the king has made this generous offer of up to half his kingdom, which, you, which probably wasn't a literal, he wasn't literally offering that, but that was something that rulers said when they were wanting to be generous with someone, okay? And this is the third time that he's made a generous offer to Esther, once in the throne room, the second time at the first feast, and now the third time at this second feast. And Esther, you see, she didn't make her request the very first time because she was trying to use some wisdom and trying to be strategic in her planning in this. And so now by her delaying her request, he's made a generous offer three times in a row to her. And this would make it very difficult for him to not honor her request without, uh, you know, without harming his reputation, which we've learned he really cares about. Look back at verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we have been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of to the king. Now, n- notice here, notice how she's coming, right? She's, she's coming very humbly, right? She's humbling herself before the king. She's, she's unassuming here. She's not making uh, demands and, and all these complaints, but she's humbling herself before the king. She says, if we, if we had just been sold into slavery, I wouldn't even be wasting your time with this. Like, this wouldn't be worth your time if we had just been sold into slavery, But then she makes her request. And she pleads for her life and the life of her people, that that her life would be spared. That the the lives of her people would be spared and would be saved. 
Because as of right now in the Persian Empire, there is a death decree that has been issued for her and her people. As of right now, there is enmity, there is hostility between the Persian Empire and the Jewish people. The empire has made a decree of destruction that is hanging over the people of God's heads. At the end of the year, on a certain day, all the Persian Empire has had approval to go annihilate and wipe out the Jewish people. There is no peace here. There is no peace here. No Jewish person at this time is sleeping peacefully through the night. They've got this hostility and this death decree hanging over their heads. They know that the empire is against them and that the wrath of their enemies is coming. And Esther, courageously serving as a mediator for her people, she pleads for her life and her people's lives that they would be saved. We see that she courageously is pursuing peace for her people in the midst of this Persian empire. They need to be saved from those that plan to do them harm. And you got to love this. Xerxes is not yet catching on as to what's really going on here. He hasn't connected all the dots and seen that this was a decree that he actually signed off on. But he's starting to get now fired up that someone would have issued a decree that threatens the life of his queen. But he doesn't yet realize it's a decree he actually signed off on. All right, so look back at verse 5. Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Would have loved to have seen Haman's reaction here, right? Much like last week when the, 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 the tables turned and Mordecai was exalted and, and Haman had to lead him around, right? Would have loved to have seen his face as, as Esther confronts and exposes his evil, wicked plan and, and identifies herself with the people of God. Esther here has revealed her true identity and she has pleaded for her life and the life of her people. And the enemy of God's people, Haman, has been exposed and confronted. You see, in the pursuit of peace, evil will need to be confronted. In the pursuit of peace, sin will need to be confronted. And in your own pursuit of peace, sin will have to be confronted both in your life and in the lives of the brothers and sisters around you. And Esther here has courageously risked her life as she has gone into this dangerous and uncomfortable situation. And I'm using the word uncomfortable a lot because I think it's something we can relate a little bit more to. But this is more than just an uncomfortable situation for Esther, right? This is a dangerous situation. This is a, a risky situation. She has risked her own life to do this. And she's doing this all the while confronting her enemy right to his face. I mean, think about it. She could have met with Xerxes like on her own. She didn't have to have Haman in the room, but she invited Haman to this and she has the courage to confront him to his face. This is some courage that we see from Esther. But not only has she come courageously, she has come humbly. She's come willing to take a risk uh, to save her people. She has given up her comfortable palace life in order to confront this evil. 
And now Xerxes has a decision to make. Look back at Esther 7, verse 7. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Okay, now we, we don't know exactly what's happening out in the garden, but we know Xerxes is a little distraught, and he's got a problem here, okay? Uh, you see, Xerxes can't just kill Haman for making a decree because he signed off on it. And so he's got a reputation to think about. He, he can't lose face here. Uh, he, he cares about that sort of thing, so he can't just kill Haman for something that he signed off on. But little did he know that God's got him covered. Because as he's trying to think about what to do and how to deal with Haman, little did he know God has got him covered because in God's providence, God is going to fight for his people. And in God's providence and in God's perfect timing, he's going to work in all the details to keep his covenant promises to his people. Because look at this, Xerxes walks back into the room and finds something that he can kill Haman for. Look at verse 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. You see, according to uh, the Persian harem protocol, which you're all probably familiar with, but just in case you forgot, I'll refresh, okay? Uh, according to the Persian harem protocol, a man was not to be within seven steps of a woman in the king's harem. It was the same protocol I had with Britt when we were dating in high school and college. Uh, I was one of those super jealous boyfriends, right? So if there was ever a guy that seemed like he was coming a little too close, I mean, just something would burn within me, right? I'd get that jealous anger. Uh, in fact, one of the fastest uh, times I ever ran in track was when I saw someone talking to Britt in the bleachers, and, uh, and I took off and just in a fit of rage, you know, ran my fastest time. Uh, now, I've, I've, I've calmed down a little bit. I've worked through some of those issues, so uh, we don't have that uh, still in place. Uh, so guys, you're allowed to be a little closer, at least maybe five steps instead of seven. Uh, but, but yeah, I've, I've kind of, you can pray for me. I'm still working through some of that. Uh, but okay, Persian harem protocol, not to be within seven steps. Xerxes comes in, and Haman is begging and pleading with Esther. Now, it is unlikely that Haman was actually trying to assault or be physical with Esther here, but rather he's begging for his life, and he's probably groveling at her feet, which is really another ironic part of the story of Esther. Haman wanted to kill a Jewish man, Mordecai, for not bowing to him, and now Haman finds himself bowing to a Jewish woman begging for his life. God's got a sense of humor, right? Uh, if you take nothing away from the book of Esther, when you think back about what Esther is ba uh, about, you should think the providence of God, and you should think God's got a sense of humor, okay? That's Esther, all right? Xerxes enters the room, and he sees now something that he can accuse Haman of, all right? He can put him to death for, being, uh, for breaking the seven-step harem protocol rule, and they cover Haman's head. Which you, if you watch enough action movies, you know when someone's head gets covered, it's not a good thing for them. It's not a good sign for Haman. But hey, maybe they'll just put him in prison. 
Maybe they'll just banish him from the empire. Haman might be thinking, hey, maybe uh, once Xerxes kind of cools off the next day, maybe it won't be, uh, maybe he won't put me to death. But then look at verse 9. Esther 7, verse 9. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50 cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. Haman's got to be thinking, Come on, man. Harbona, you just had to bring up the gallows that I built at my house. Verse 10, so they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. I'll read verse 10 again. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. It was on the gallows that God kept his covenantal promises to his people and providentially provided them peace. It was on the gallows that the enemy of the people of God was defeated and the wrath of the king was appeased. It was on the gallows that was high and lifted up 75 feet in the air that the enemy was defeated and the wrath of the king appeased. You see, church, in a similar fashion, in our pursuit of peace, our pursuit of peace required an enemy to be defeated and wrath to be appeased. The wrath of God is not something that is very popular to talk about nowadays, but we have to because our God is not a God who is indifferent to sin. And and you wouldn't want him to be one. God does not sit complacently by while people rebel against him and plot evil against his people. God is not indifferent to the rebellion of humanity. No, God hates sin. Psalm 7 verse 11 says that our God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. He is righteously angry with those who would turn from his ways. And so we must not be afraid to speak of his wrath, for it is just as holy and glorious of an attribute as any of his other attributes. I mean, think about it this way. Would you really want a God who was indifferent to sin? Would you really want a God who didn't care about the atrocities and the evil and the, the hate and the, the uh, sex trafficking and the murder and the theft? Like, would you really want a God who was indifferent to that, who didn't care about the evil done in his world? You see, yes, we know that his active wrath will be poured out eternally on those who reject him. But even now, his passive wrath is being poured out on many by turning them over to their sin. And we see this happen here with Haman. His hatred of the people of God, his pursuit of power, honor, and glory for himself has led to his own destruction. Haman's got no one to blame for this except himself. Proverbs 11, verse 5, it says, The righteousness of the blameless keeps his way straight, 
but the wicked falls by his own wickedness. Even John Calvin, who I think many have misunderstood his actual beliefs, Calvin said, man falls according as God's providence ordains, but he falls by his own fault. He falls by his own fault. And so praise God when he disciplines and corrects us, but what a fearful thing it is to be turned over to our own sin and left to our own folly. The wicked will fall by their own folly. And church, listen, we must know about the wrath of God if we really want to understand on a deeper level the love of God. Because we do not have a God who was content to just take his wrath out on another, but know a God who himself came down to earth to take the wrath that was meant for us. 1 John 4, verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that word propitiation, I realize it's not something we commonly use. A propitiation is something that appeases the wrath of an offended power. Propitiation is something that appeases the wrath of an offended power. And church, it was the God-man, Jesus Christ, who was the propitiation for our sins. He took the righteous wrath that was meant for us and completely satisfied it so that we would no longer be under wrath, so that we would no longer be under condemnation, so that we would no longer be at war with God, but instead through Christ we now have peace with God. Peace with God. And our pursuit of peace, it must begin at the cross where our enemy was defeated and the wrath of God was appeased. But then, church, in our pursuit of peace, we must courageously confront the sin that still dwells in us and the sin that still dwells within our brothers and sisters in Christ. But many times we do not confront sin. Why? Because it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. And by doing so, we live as if we love comfort more than we love people. You see, church, it's not a bad thing to desire peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. This is a good desire. This is something we've been commissioned to go be uh, ambassadors of reconciliation, to pursue peace. It's a godly thing. Multiple Bible verses say, pursue peace. Romans 12, verse 18, uh, which we have up on the screen, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. The desire for peace is a good desire. The problem is we falsely believe that the way to peace is to retreat from conflict and to retreat from the uncomfortable and to retreat from taking risks for the spread of the gospel and to retreat from dangerous situations. But church, that's not the road to peace. That's not the way to peace. That's not the way to peace with God for ourselves and with others. The way to to peace is not through retreating from these uncomfortable situations. 
It's been said when Cortez uh, landed in Mexico to start his conquest, uh, many have, have said, you know, when the troops landed and they, they unloaded the ships, that he burned the boats, which is kind of a, uh, kind of a jerk thing to do, in my opinion. Uh, but he wanted his, his soldiers to fight in such a way, to, to advance in such a way that there was no option of retreat. Like there was no going back. You, you just have to go forward here. And in the same way, church, in our pursuit of peace, the cross of Christ was like the burning of the boats. And the peace that we have with God, it compels us to go forward. We can't retreat from confronting sin. We can't retreat from the uncomfortable. We can't retreat and just avoid these things. The cross of Christ and the peace we have with God compels us to go forward. The way to peace is to humbly and lovingly and gently engage in the uncomfortable even if it means risking your life, your reputation, and your comfort. Paul, when writing to the Corinthians, he gives them a sharp rebuke when sin was being tolerated in the church. There was a man living in obvious sin, and it was likely that there were brothers and sisters who saw it, but loved their comfort more than they loved him, and so never called him out on it, never confronted him on it, and instead they try to play it up as if they were just a really loving, tolerant, accepting church. But Paul warns them that when sin is not humbly, lovingly, and gently confronted, that it will actually not bring about more peace in the life of the church, but only more disunity and more chaos and more division and disorder. The problem will only get worse if you retreat from it. And he writes this to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. He says, your boasting is not good, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you, have, that you may uh, be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, some of you might hear this sermon this morning and start to get a little excited because maybe you like the uncomfortable conversations. Maybe you like confrontation. Maybe you have a personality that you just love a good fight or a good debate. And you're always looking for a conflict to get into. But listen, we have to be warned here a little bit. There is an unhealthy type of confrontation that is harmful and does not lead to peace. And typically, it is a heart motivation. Typically, unhealthy confrontation is motivated by pride or selfishness. Unhealthy confrontation does not approach a brother or sister humbly or lovingly or gently. But instead, this is someone who does not approach out of a love for the other person, but instead seeking to hurt the other person or to puff up or justify themselves. 
So certainly, church, check your heart motivation. There's a wrong way to go about doing this. There is such a thing as an unhealthy confrontation. But church, when we really love people more than we love our comforts, then we will lovingly and humbly and in a spirit of gentleness not retreat from difficult conversations, but engage in them. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you too be tempted. O oh, church, our good God has defeated our enemy and appeased his wrath that we might have peace with God and peace with one another. This is what we want to pursue. And if we really loved one another more than we loved our own comfort, I think we would not retreat from the uncomfortable or the difficult situations, but instead engage them. Do you love your comfort more than you love people? I'm thankful for early, uh, even earlier this week, Kevin uh, lovingly called me out on something. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't a, a huge thing. It wasn't a, a big thing. But he had seen how I re- had responded to a certain situation. And he lovingly and he humbly and he gently said, Hey, man, like I'm, I'm a little frustrated and a little concerned with what I see in you and how you're responding to this. He said, he said, you said something where it seems like it came from a heart that is, is focused on yourself. He said something like that. I usually tune him out, but it was something to that degree. But man, I was, I was so grateful for that. Like those aren't always comfortable or easy things, but it was so good for my soul. To, to have a brother who I know loves me who would be willing to give up the comfortable conversation for the uncomfortable one, for the sake of helping me see my blind spots so that they can be dealt with, so that peace with God and with others can be enjoyed. Do you have someone, do you have some trusted brothers or sisters in your life that you've given permission to, to humbly and to lovingly and to gently help you confront your sin. Maybe even this week, you need to reach out to one or two people and give them permission to help you in your pursuit of peace. Because church, the pursuit of comfort and the pursuit of peace are not the same thing. And the way to peace is not through retreating or avoiding or hiding. Peace is reached through opposing sin, standing up to injustice, and leaning into the uncomfortable. And my prayer is that God would give us a love for him and a love for one another that would exceed our love for our comfort and our sin. But may our courage, may our courage 
The title of this sermon is The Courageous Pursuit of Peace. May our courage to pursue peace be fueled by our great God who on the gallows kept his covenantal promises and providentially provided us peace with him. May that fuel our courage. May our peace with him make us courageous pursuers of peace in his world. And may we be a church who loves its people more than it loves its comforts. Let's pray.